All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, where we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35. When I was growing up, my dad sometimes would tell me to go fetch something out of the house, the garage or something, and I would go in there and I would look and look and look and look, and I couldn't find it. So I'd come back, and Dad, I couldn't find it. And he'd go, come with me. And he'd take me in there and go, right there. See it right there in the open right there? You ever have that happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a brain development thing or not, but there it would be in the open, and my eyes would be, and think, man, why didn't I see it? Why didn't I see it? It was sitting right there. Uh, there's been times when uh, I couldn't find my glasses. I looked around, looked around, find them on my face. I'm thinking, man, I can see just fine. I should be able to spot them. There's been times I've been doing woodworking. I can't find my pencil and it's behind my ear. One time I was thinking about something. I walked out in the parking lot where I knew my truck was. And, and uh, I was like, where's my truck? Somebody stole my truck. I pull out my, my key and go to like right behind me. It's like, there it is. So yeah, there's times when we... We're just clueless about things that are just right there, right in front of our face, and we just don't see them. And in the text today, we're going to see one of these situations. We're going to learn about a couple men who went on a little journey, a little road trip, and who were just totally blind to something right in front of their face. Now, if you remember, last week was uh, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus had rose from the dead, and a group of women had made their way to the tomb. And when they got to the tomb, they found that it was open, and Jesus wasn't. Jesus' body wasn't inside. When Mary Magdalene found out about this, she bolted back to tell Peter and John, who then uh, proceeded to come to the tomb to look for themselves. Meanwhile, the women had a discussion with some angels who appeared to them. Those angels told them that Christ had risen, so they went back to the other disciples and said, you you know, Jesus has risen. We saw these angels. And then Peter and John finally arrived at the tomb. Uh, John believed. Peter did not. And so this is the kind of uh, situation that is happening. And now Luke just goes to another event that's happening that morning. About noon or afternoon, he begins to tell us about another incredible story about these two men. And from our text, uh, we're just going to look at five questions about Jesus and his resurrection that we can answer just to evaluate our own faith, our own walk with the Lord, and to help us give glory to God. I'm not going to read the text because it's really big, but I wanted to cover it all in one piece because it's all one story that's unique to Luke's gospel. So the first thing we want to look at is, are you blind to the truth? Uh, look at Luke 24, verse 13, where we begin our little road trip. Luke writes, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Who are these two people? We don't know. We just know one of them is uh, uh, Cleopas, and we don't know... If he's the same one mentioned in John 19 or not, uh, we don't even know where Emmaus is. All we know is its distance from Jerusalem. And so 
uh, to seven miles would take you about an hour and a half or so to walk. Uh, not a huge walk. Look down at verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. So what things are talking about Jesus, you know, the week before the Jesus teaching in the temple, probably, um, you know, their Hosanna in the highest that we just sang. And as they declared him to be the Messiah and then the arrest, the trial, the scourging, the crucifixion, his burial, just all of those things. They're talking about those things. They are um, two of Jesus' followers and they're really wounded because now the man that they put their hope in is now dead, or so they think. Verse 15 says, Then while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now, remember, it's Passover, the busiest pilgrim feast of the year in Jerusalem. And remember that there are some three million Jews now crushed into Jerusalem and its surrounding environs uh, to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like... um, You, if you travel on the freeway to work, traveling on the freeway to work, but no cars, just a whole bunch of people. There's people everywhere. It's not like these two men are on a lonely road to Emmaus. There's people all over the place. And so it would be no big deal to have somebody kind of merge next to you and walk along with you. In that culture, um, when you travel from place to place, you'd often, uh, you know, meet strangers and talk with them to pass the time, to get to know each other, to have fellowship with one another. And so this was uh, no big deal. They may have felt a little intruded upon because they were pretty depressed. They were grieving. They were mourning. They were despairing because Jesus, the one they had put all their hope in, had been killed and now was dead. Look at verse 16. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. That's how come when Jesus walked alongside, they didn't say, Jesus, what are you doing here? You know, they just, they were just blind. They didn't know. They, they couldn't see it. The text says their eyes were prevented. That is, God kept them from seeing the truth. And we've seen this before. I'm not going to go into it. At times, God sovereignly blinds people to truth so that um, he can accomplish some other good task. When it comes to spiritual truth, really, it can't be known apart from the Holy Spirit's assistance. And so these two men were prevented from recognizing Jesus. So they're walking with Jesus And the question is, why would God do this? And the text doesn't say, but my guess is, is that um, Jesus wanted them to hear the sermon he was going to preach to them in just a minute. He wanted them to hear his Jesus in the Old Testament sermon. And he knew that if he showed up and he let them recognize him, they would instantly be going, Lord, what happened? You're raised from the dead. And, you know, they'd be so excited. They'd be talking and they wouldn't listen to the sermon. They just have a million questions and Jesus could never get the sermon out. So Jesus is going to first get the sermon out and then he's going to reveal himself to them. Look at verse 17. And he, Jesus, said to them, Now what are these uh, words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? I I love this. Um, You know, the text doesn't say, but I think Jesus probably had a little grin on his face. So, 
what are you guys talk you know so serious about here? What are you guys talking about? You know what? You know, you probably saw them. They're probably talking hand gestures. You know, it's, you know, they, they, as they're going along, Jesus says, "So, what, what, what you talking about?" Look towards the end of verse seventeen, and they stood still, looking sad. Now, when Jesus uttered that question, it so amazed them, it so astonished them that they stopped. They, they're, they're, They're dumbfounded that Jesus could ask such an ignorant question. And they're looking sad. They're stopped in their tracks. And one of them, look at verse 18, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? That's funny. Jesus has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Jesus was there. And so when Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? It it just stops them in their track. They're just like, dude. I mean, he didn't actually say that. If he was from Southern California, he would have. Are you just the only one in visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know about what everybody knows about here? I mean, it's funny. To, it's, to ask Jesus why, if he's not aware of his own crucifixion. I mean, he was there. He experienced it. And the two disciples are really kind of incredulous that this traveler is so ignorant about what everybody's talking about. Everybody's talking about it. It just rocked Jerusalem to have this man hailed as the Messiah and the triumphal entry going toe-to-toe with religious leaders all week in front of all those crowds of people. The trial, the public trial, the execution on a main road leading into Jerusalem, and you have not heard anything about any of this? Everybody knew about it. Everybody was talking about it. You know... I think Jesus is kind of empty. Because if you look at verse 19, he said, what things? (laughs) That's good, isn't it? Like, what? Why don't you tell me about it? You go ahead and purge on me, you know? Unload. And they said to him the things about Jesus the Nazarene. Who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Man, where have you been this last week? How come you don't know these things? There was this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And they identify him as a prophet. This doesn't mean that they don't believe he's a Messiah. They believe that, as we're going to see in a second. The problem is, is it's hard to tell a stranger that another guy was the Messiah when he died. We believed he was a Messiah, but now he's dead. So we'll just call him a prophet because other prophets died. 
And so they affirm him to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And notice that the, these two Jewish disciples blame the Jewish leaders for Jesus' death. And the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But man, they are not, they are not finished. They've kind of got their ire up, I think. They're going to do a little bit more lecturing to Jesus and get him squared away. Because I don't know when this guy arrived in Jerusalem, but man, he is out of touch. They continue, verse 21, indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these sayings happened, implied, listen, you must not be from here because you don't know these things. But if you are here, surely you came for the Passover. And if you've been here for the Passover, which was three days ago, how come you don't know these things? It's Resurrection Sunday. And, and, and they're just blown away that a guy could be around Jerusalem in its vicinity for three days and not hear about it. Now, what we see here is some serious blindness in these men, don't they? Oh, don't we? We just, they're, they're, they just can't see. You know, you can grow up in a Christian home and be blind to Jesus. You can, you can call yourself a Christian and go to church and be blind to Jesus. You can know who Jesus is and know what he did and be blind to Jesus. Unbelief is a sin that blinds men to Jesus. I would imagine that if we had time and we could take all the true believers from this congregation here this morning, right now, and we could isolate them, I bet you at least one-third of the believers here right now would, would testify that they grew up at a point in time saying they were Christians, going to church, doing good deeds, trying to do the right thing, telling other people, yeah, I'm a believer, I believe, and then came to Christ. And then came to Christ for real. After a time of professing to be a believer when they weren't. You know, it is a tragedy to have great knowledge of Jesus and yet be spiritually blind. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven... But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Think about that. Here you have a group of people in the church, serving in the church, doing miraculous deeds, supposedly. They call Jesus Lord. They're doing things in his name. Jesus says they are the many of the churchgoers. Many of the churchgoers. And when they finally get to heaven, Jesus says, I don't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You're thinking, how could that be? That, I think that's probably the scariest passage in all the Bible. It would be one thing to hate God and live for yourself as just, you know, an atheist all your life and die and no surprise, you're on your way to hell. But to be in the church, 
to be doing good deeds in Jesus' name, professing him as your Lord, and then perishing? That is, to me, is scary. And that's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? You need to evaluate your life. You need to make sure you've been transformed by grace, that you love Jesus, that you honor Jesus. You need to cry out to to Christ, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You need to cast yourself upon the mercy of God. You need to be like Jacob who grabbed onto the angel of the Lord and said, I will not let go until you bless me. You pursue Christ and you cling to him until you know you're saved. None of this, well, listen, I've been going to church for a long time. That is a scary thought. You need yourself to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or you will perish. You need to know Christ, have a relationship with Christ. Secondly, do you doubt Jesus is risen? Look at verses 22 and following. They're still lecturing Jesus, these two guys. But also, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. And they came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. We had some women among us. They actually went to the tomb. They saw it open and they came back and said they had seen angels. And the angels told them that Jesus was risen. They're not done. Verse 24. And some of those who were with us, Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but they did not see him. Him they did not see. The whole point is, is that even though they had the testimony of all these faithful women who were not in the habit of lying, and the testimony of Peter and John, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus were not believing. They were not believing. Faith in the resurrected Lord was right there in front of their face and they couldn't see it. You remember what happened after Jesus, uh, just a short while after this, Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas was gone and they saw him and they told Thomas and Thomas says, well, I'm not going to believe until I see him myself. Until I put my hands in the wounds and, you know, Mr. Empirical Data. And so Jesus then appeared. And when Thomas saw him, he fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God. And you remember what Jesus said right after that? Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. John 20, 29. Jesus likes faith. The conviction of things hoped for. And not seen. Not seen. And these two disciples, because they didn't see it, they weren't believing. You know, and a lot of times we pick on Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. But really, they were all Doubting Thomases. None of them believed until they saw, except for John, who believed when he went to the tomb. 
They were all doubting Thomases. So let's not pick on Thomas. Let's pick on all of them but John. Because they all had to see him before they believed. You know, men on their own, apart from the grace of God, are, they're just blind. They're lost. They're spiritually dead. They're deceived. They're deluded. They're enslaved by Satan held captive to do his will. And they just can't see the goodness of Christ and the grace of God in Christ until God, by his grace, opens their eyes and they go, oh, I see. It's so fun to talk to new believers who just a day or few, few before that were totally in opposition to God. Now they're totally for him. They didn't want to accept Christ and now they've accepted Christ. They want to live for the world. Now they want to live for Christ. I mean, just what happened? They didn't have any therapy. (laughs) Nobody gave them any drugs. They're totally living for the flesh and for sin and for self. And now they want to live for Christ. They want to learn the word. They want to grow in grace. They're just, what is that? That is salvation. That is life transformation. That's becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus has to will to reveal himself, otherwise you just don't get it. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus confronts the unbelief of the religious leaders and explains why some end up believing. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's a work of God. When somebody believes, it's the work of God. When somebody doesn't believe, it's the work of man. Men are unbelieving on their own. They all suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But when it comes to believing, that is a work of God's grace. In verse 44 of John 6, No one can come to me unless it has, unless the Father who sent me draws him. In verse 65 of that same chapter, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it talks about Lydia, the, the seller of purple fabrics. And it says, after Paul preached, that the Lord opened her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. Philippians 1.29 says, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. To believe in him. It's been granted. God is sovereign in salvation. Men are sovereign in unbelief. They're great at unbelieving, of sinning, of rebelling, of not wanting to come to the light. You remember what Jesus said as he's dialoguing with Nicodemus? Actually, it could be John who says this. It's hard to tell where Jesus and Nicodemus leave off and John begins. But John 3.16, we know that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So you kind of have this universal, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son to the world 
to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Notice he doesn't say he who has not believed has been judged already because God has not chosen him. That's not what it says. Men are unbelieving on their own. They believe by the grace of God. They're unbelieving on their own. And so Jesus says, this is the judgment that light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. That's what men are good at doing. Loving darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Men do that all on their own. And does not come to the light for fear that their deeds might be exposed. They won't come. They will not come. God doesn't make them do that. Then God would be culpable for causing men to sin because unbelief is sin. Romans 1, 18 through 32 talks, the whole section talks about how all men are sinners and how they reject, they suppress, that they themselves suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12 talks about, they they perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, when they hear the gospel, it's foolishness to them. Paul told those on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. There is a universal call to repent and believe, a command to repent and believe from God to all men. God commands all men to believe. And when they choose not to believe, that's not God's fault. That's man's fault. God doesn't make anybody unbelieving. You can't tell God, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to live for the Lord. I'm not going to believe because God hasn't fixed me. No, it's because you don't want to. You can't impugn the character of God by asserting that, well, you know, it's just not fair. Because God hasn't saved me yet. Listen, pal, you don't want fair. Hell is fair. Salvation is by grace, and grace is undeserved and unearned favor from God. So whenever you start talking about fair, you start talking about justice. When you talk about justice, you're talking about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and deserve hell. You don't want justice from God. You want what is undeserved and unearned. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see Jesus as the resurrected Savior? The Word of God commands you to believe in Him. And if you do that, you will be saved forever. Don't start worrying, well, what if I'm not elect? And what if I'm not chosen? And what if God doesn't give me the grace? Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you'll know. Third, do you believe the scriptures? William Hendrickson, speaking of these two disciples, writes this. These two friends of Jesus are returning to Emmaus. It's springtime, yet they hear not the singing of the birds. They see not the awakening of nature with lagging feet under leaden skies. They continue on their way home, home from a funeral. 
A dear one has been buried, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, stranger. We hope that he was the one who would redeem Israel. We hoped, past tense, but now all hope is gone. They're just sloshing down the road. Bummed, grieved, mourning, confused. And then the stranger says, look at verse 25, Oh, foolish man and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now just stop there. I wonder what they thought about that. Oh, foolish men. Now, there's, there's one word that's almost always translated foolish. It's the Greek word that we get moronic from, moron. That's not the one used here. This one here is just being ignorant of the truth. Like just children who are just clueless. They just don't know. They just don't understand. They don't know any better. Oh, you who are just like little children who just don't understand all, all that the prophets have spoken. And I'm sure the two disciples thought, listen, pal, who are you? You know, we grew up Jews, like you did. And we grew up in the synagogue. And we were disciples of Jesus. And I'm telling you, let me just tell you something. He was the greatest teacher that ever lived. And we followed him. And we heard him. Don't you tell us we're slow and foolish? (laughs) Notice that they were slow and foolish. They had heard Jesus for three years. And all that time before that, they had the scriptures. And they saw the miracles. And they heard the testimony of the women. And they heard Peter and John. And they were still unbelieving. They still couldn't bring themselves to believe that Jesus had rose from the dead. Look at verse 26. And then Jesus asked the the question, the question. Really, this is the question of all questions for any Jewish person. This is it. This is the one. This is the question which, if answered correctly, fixes everything. Jesus asks it. Was it not necessary for the Christ or Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? If they would have answered that question correctly, everything would have made sense. It just would have been, of course. But they were blind to it. Why? Because the Jews had been suppressed for so long by Gentile nations, had been killed and told what to do and driven off into captivity, and they just were long for the day when their enemies would be overthrown, when the Messiah would come back in glory, when he'd beat up all the bad guys and exalt Jerusalem. And so when they went to the scriptures, that's all they could see. When it came to the Messiah, they thought Messiah, Redeemer, Messiah, Deliverer, Messiah, King, Messiah, Savior. He's going to rescue us. He's going to redeem us. They saw, and you know what? The scriptures have all those texts that talk about that. And so that's all they saw. 
It never dawned on them that in order for the justice of God to be satisfied perfectly against the sins of men, they couldn't just offer animals. They needed a perfect human to atone and make a perfect atonement for sinful humans. It never dawned on them. And there is a lesson to learn here about Bible interpretation. Don't ever come to the Bible determining in your heart to find what you want to find. To bring your little Play-Doh machine, (laughs) stick every passage in that machine, and then push down the lever so it comes out looking like you want. That's how a lot of people use the Bible. They use it so they can make it say what they want. Just let the Bible tell you what God says. Let it speak to you plainly. Seek to understand what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. The plain meaning, the obvious meaning, the meaning that fits the flow of the context. These men had heard the scriptures taught all their life and were clueless about the Messiah needing to die and be glorified. Why is that? Because it wouldn't fit through their Plato machine. They had to get Messiah. If it's a Messiah text, it comes out, Messiah returns and rescues us and exalts Jerusalem. If it doesn't fit there, it's not Messiah. That's it. That's it. Look at verse 27 and notice what Jesus does. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I just want to make a comment here. There are some, especially in certain reform circles, who want to stick Jesus into every passage. It's what uh, Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser called the Christo-exclusivist principle. Jesus behind every bush. Jesus in every verse. The dog returns to its vomit. He's in there somewhere. Yeah, and they set a chair down and he sat in it. The chair's Christ! What? Yeah, the chair supports the person and since Jesus supports us, the chair's Christ! And that's really the kind of thing that some people do. And you know what? There is such a lack of preaching Jesus today. You sympathize with the idea that we need to preach Christ. But not at the expense of misinterpreting the scripture or reading into the scripture things that the original audience could not have understood. And when they came to the scriptures, they just could not figure out how this idea of Jesus would fit in. Now, there is a principle called the Christological principle or the Christocentric principle, which says that whenever we're studying an Old Testament passage, we can look to see how it might refer to Jesus or God's plan of redemption. That's fine. But if Jesus isn't there, he's not there. If the original audience couldn't come away saying, man, we didn't know that about the Messiah then he's not there. 
Now, there's an exception to this, and that's if you have inspired texts telling you, commenting on some Old Testament passage, telling us some things that maybe they couldn't understand. But it's not our right to go into every Old Testament passage and pretend like the original audience couldn't have understood it. That the whole Old Testament was nothing but an enigma and a mystery until after they died and Jesus came. No, that's not the case. And so as Jesus walks with these two disciples, he gives them a survey of text. Some say, well, notice he said all the scriptures and all the prophets. Yeah, but do you really think Jesus did an exposition of the entire Old Testament on an hour and a half walk? Come on. He went through all the scriptures, plucking out those key texts that referred to he and his suffering. That's what he did. It might have gone something like this. You know, Jesus says, uh, do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? And how the Lord killed the innocent animal to make clothing to cover them for the consequences of the sin? And the two disciples go, well, yeah, we remember that. Well, that was really the first picture of the Messiah's suffering in the scriptures. And do you remember how Abraham offered up Isaac, his son? And how God then told him to stop and provided a lamb to substitute for Isaac? And then the the ram died? Well, that ram there was a picture of the Messiah. And do you remember the Passover? Well, just celebrated it. How they were to take the innocent lamb and kill it and put its blood on the doorpost so that death would pass over. Innocent one dying so that guilty ones could go free. That lamb pictured the Messiah. And I'm sure at this time they're thinking, whoa, who is this guy? And maybe they ask, well, are there any specific passages that actually talk about the Messiah suffering? Oh, yeah. The stranger says, you remember how David cries out in the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as soon as the stranger utters those words, these disciples' minds instantly race back to when they saw Jesus and heard him cry out those same words. And they look at each other like... And then Jesus goes on to say, remember how David talked about people sneering at him, wagging their heads at him, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him if he delights in him. Do you remember how he says that in the Psalms? And they're saying, yeah, yeah, we do. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Yeah. Do you remember how David talks about dogs surrounding him, a band of evildoers encompassing him, that they pierced his hands and feet, dividing his garments among themselves by casting lots, and these disciples are going, that is exactly what happened with Jesus. Well, the stranger says, David was talking about The Messiah's suffering, there too. And do you remember when David in another psalm wrote, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken? And one of them says, hey, they didn't break Jesus' legs. That's right too. Yes, says the stranger. 
And David was speaking of the suffering of the Messiah. In another psalm, he speaks of how they gave him gall and vinegar to drink. That's right. That's what they gave to Jesus. And do you remember how Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant? Do you remember the suffering servant through Isaiah's prophecy? And in that one text, he says his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Does that sound familiar to you? And their minds go back and they see Jesus' face and they're going, that's right. And remember how Isaiah goes on to say he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Does that remind you of anybody? Yes, it reminds us of Jesus. And Isaiah says, surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows, our sorrows, he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we're healed. Because all of us like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned from his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You remember that? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. We see it now. We see it. That's incredible. Yeah, says the stranger. And no, Isaiah goes on to say he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. They're going, you know what? He never said anything. There was a point where he just quit speaking. He just let them do it. Yeah, the stranger says, and by oppression and a judgment, he was taken away and cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He suffered for their sins. Whoa, 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 whoa. The two disciples are going, whoa, overload, overload. We never saw this before. You're kidding me. It's just like, whoa, this makes all, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. The stranger says, it's all there. I mean, Isaiah really gets serious because he goes on to say his grave was assigned with a wicked man. Yet he was with the rich man in his death. Remember, he was crucified between two criminals. And yet, where was he buried? With the rich man in the rich man's tomb. That's right. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors that he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. The stranger says, do you get it? Do you see it there? Is that clear enough? And the two disciples say, man, we never saw these things before. Yes. You want a really explicit passage. Do you remember when Daniel is talking about the 70 weeks that God has decreed for the people of Israel? And he says, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be, and they say, cut off. 
There you have it. There you have it. And so as they walk and as they talk, Jesus just takes them through the scriptures and they're going, whoa, whoa. Their eyes are being opened. They're understanding things they never understood before. They've pitched the Play-Doh machine. And my question to you is, do you believe the scriptures? Do you believe they are the word of God, that they are inspired, that they are inerrant, that they are living and active and sharper and piercing and able to judge that if you get into the word of God, it will change your life? You know, it just amazes me when I talk to people who just, who don't really have an interest in the Bible. It's, it's like, you know, having a deadly disease that's killing you and say, here's the medicine. And you've got it in your hand. And you're thinking, man, I wish I'd have a word from the Lord. I wish you'd speak to me in a dream. Or I wish you'd speak to me in a vision. Or I wish you'd tell me what to do. It's like, pal, he spoke. Okay? It's in the book. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And by them, these precious and magnificent promises, he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him from this book. Or as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. That all scripture is inspired by God. It's all God breathed and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. And yet so many people walking around going, I don't know what God wants me to do. Have you tried looking in the book? Now my marriage is terrible. Have you tried obeying the book? You don't know all the stress I'm going, go to the book. It's in the book. And it's so many people just don't believe. They don't believe that this book has the answers to their life. Because they think it's just an old, large history book that can't relate to them in this day and age. Listen, if you're one of those people who who just is not in the word... I, I'm going to double dog dare you right now. This is what I want you to do. I want you to just take on a little project for this week and this week only. This is just a trial thing. This is what I want you to do. I want you to get puritanical just one week. From now on till next Sunday. I want you to read your Bible as much as you can. Set aside the TV. Set aside talk radio. When you're driving around, listen to sermons. Listen to the Bible on tape. I want you to just get into the word, pray, look at it, ponder it, read 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 it. Get as much as you can. Go to any Bible study you can. Go to Sunday school class, everything. Just go. Just one week. I dare you. I double dog dare you. And at the end of the week, see if it doesn't make a difference in your life. If you don't think about God more, if you don't have more peace, more joy, a better prayer life, that things that you're dealing with right now, you keep running into verses like, oh, that's like, it was written just for me. It was. It was. Uh, and you keep hearing it every time you hear the sermon. It's like, well, that sermon's about my problem. And, and this passage's about me. And that Bible study's trying. You just start hearing, but oh, how we can go through life not believing that this book is what we need. And so we neglect it and neglect it and neglect it. For one week, get fanatical, try it, you'll never be the same. And believe me, God's not a liar. It will change your life.
Fourth, do you recognize the presence of the resurrected Lord? Look at verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going. And he acted as though he were going further. Well, guys, it's been good chatting. It was fun blowing your minds on those scriptures. I can see you got a lot to think about, but I'm going to mosey on. Wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You know, um, how about you come and, you know, have a little dinner with us? We'd like to talk to you some more. Their attitude now has totally changed. Notice it says that, uh, it says they urged him, verse 29, urged him saying, stay with us. For it's getting towards evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when they had reclined at the table with him, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to him. Now, now this is what's interesting because before they're kind of irritated with him. They're lecturing him. He's kind of the underling. Now everything's changed. This guy's little sermon on Jesus in the Old Testament has so blown them away that now he is given the place of host. He, he's the, the, the master is the one who broke the bread. Now, Jesus is all of a sudden in charge. Here, why don't you serve us? It just seems right. They still don't understand why. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Ah! I mean, isn't that? Ah! You can just imagine. It's the... God. He's gone. He's gone. Where did he go? I mean, just when they were just, just getting to the place where it's like, it's Jesus. He's gone. Oh, man, it would have been fun to see that. You can imagine how thrilling, amazing, shocking, and embarrassing that would have been. Yeah, and you were lecturing. Well, you were too. Yeah, but you said, where have you been? Then he was on the cross, pal. Look at verse 32. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? No wonder. Oh, it was great. They're just, they're on fire. They just went from, you know, gloom to joy, from despair to hope, from grief to exaltation, from Funeral to resurrection. Man, and they're just like, whoa, this is good. Now, there's just a little thought here I had about this. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what would have, I mean, how would they have adjusted their words if, if they had just seen Jesus from the beginning? It would have been a whole different conversation, right? And I just thought, you know, it would be a little bit embarrassing to think, man, we kind of talked to him harshly. You know, we kind of treated him like an ignorant fool. And yet we were the blind ones. And I was just thinking that just as these two men were walking with Jesus, we're walking with Jesus if we know the Lord. He lives within us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And every day, in every moment, Jesus is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, right? And so he's always there. He's always there to 
Be our friend. He's always listening. He's always watching. He knows everything we say, everything we do, and everything we think. And may this be a reminder of us that though we can't see him, he's there. He's told us he's there. And may that check us from running into sin. And may that motivate us to live for his glory. To live and so speak because he is with us all the time. Fourth and, or fifth and finally, you are, uh, are you responding to the resurrected Lord? We see them doing the same thing the women did after they went to the tomb and And the women were very excited, went back and immediately told people, look at verse 33, and they got up that very hour and made a backwards trek to Jerusalem. You know, but this time I imagine it didn't take them an hour and a half. They probably didn't saunter up the road, dragging their feet. They probably ran and stopped and walked a little bit and hurry, hurry. It's like, hey, pal, I'm old. Um, and then they, they burst in. Uh, it says here, um, uh, they returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And they were saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That is, before they could get out their experience, the disciples tell them, guess what? Jesus is risen and appeared to Simon or Peter. And they're thinking, well, that's just what we're going to tell you. This is what happened to us. And then they relate the story of how they walked with Jesus for that whole time. And they never knew it was Jesus. And how as soon as they recognized him, he vanished from their sight. Look at verse 35. And they, the two disciples, again, began to relate their experience on the road and how he, Jesus, was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So here's the lessons we learn from this. One, we need to consider if we're blind to the truth of the gospel. We may know the gospel, but we may be blind to it still. We need to ask ourselves if we're doubting that Jesus is risen from the dead. Even in spite of all the testimony and all the changed lives and all the scriptures said, some people just can't bring themselves to do that. And that's necessary if you want to get to heaven. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you're saved. And you need to ask yourself if you believe the scriptures. If you believe the scriptures, do you believe Jesus is who the scriptures say he was, predicted him to be, what he taught, what he told us. Do you believe the scriptures? And if you do, do you prove that by living them out or seeking to live them out? Do you recognize the presence of the resurrected Lord in your life all the time? We need to constantly remember Jesus is with me right now. He's walking with me right now. He's listening to me right now he knows what i'm doing right now and finally are you responding to the resurrected lord by telling other people about him just as the women did and just as these two disciples on the road to emmaus did the story really when you look at it it's a big text it really comes down to two things it's really trying to teach us two basic things one is this If you know Christ, you need to remember Jesus is risen 
and live for him. And if you don't know Christ, you need to know that Jesus is risen. Believe in him and live for him. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you'd help us all to live for Christ in a way that brings him glory and honor. We're thankful for the text that we just looked at and just uh, the blessing that it was. We're so thankful that Luke included this story. It is so fun. So amazing. Such a blessing. We see ourselves in those two disciples who thought they knew so much and yet knew so little. Who thought they had everything squared away, but they did not. Who lectured Jesus as if Jesus didn't know about his own crucifixion. And Father, I just pray that we would seek Christ Submit to Him as our Lord, as our Savior. Trust Him to reveal His truth to us. And Father, I pray that we would live every day as if Jesus is walking with us, because He is walking with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.